Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to an extra episode of The Eastern Border. Now, I know what you have been expecting, the October Revolution, Lenin, and Russian Civil War. And don't worry, don't worry, guys, it's in progress, but a little bit of waiting won't spoil it in any way or form. Now, what might go away and what might change is what this extra episode is all about. You see, there is a Russian independent online site called Spectre, and they're the opposition to Putin, obviously, and working together with Latvia's largest news portal, Delphi.lv, they have sent journalists to the eastern Ukraine, where the war is still going on. And now, we have some reports that have arrived, and some of them this very morning. Now, obviously, all the reports are in Russian, or Latvian, and it doesn't seem likely that anyone has been busy translating them in English. So I took it up to myself to take those reports together with what I have dug up on the Russian internet and to, you know, inform you how it's like, how it's really like, in the eastern border of Ukraine today. So, welcome to Donetsk Luhansk, comrades. Now, first, some statistics, so that you can make more sense of all of this. About 3 million people live in the territory that's occupied by the pro-Kremlin forces. That's essentially the population of Latvia and Estonia added together. The pro-Kremlin forces occupy about 30% of the territory of the Ukrainian Donbass district and have formed two quasi-states. And these quasi-states even have like proper borders with customs and everything. Now, one of them is called People's Republic of Donetsk and the other one is People's Republic of Luhansk. Because People's Republics are all the rage these days, apparently. Now, I shall be focusing more on the Donetsk People's Republic, because there are more facts available about this territory. But it's pretty safe to say that things in Luhansk are quite similar. We also have the average prices in this area, as reported by the visiting journalists, which also helps to put things in context. The average salary is 150 to 200 euros per month, 
that would be about 160 to 215 United States dollars. Rent for an apartment per month, excluding the water, electricity, and other bills, is about 80 to 90 euros. That's 85 to 100 dollars. Gasoline costs 0.72 euros per liter. That, and I have to admit I had to do some math for this, comes out to 2,95 dollars per gallon. Gallons are weird. <clears throat> Vodka costs 2 euros per liter. That's, um... Well, you know, euro is about 1.1 dollars. You can make the calculations yourself by this point. Standard food basket. That is, the calculated price of a set of basic foodstuffs, as defined by United Nations and various other agencies who look at poverty ratings and stuff like that. And the price of this basic food basket is about 10 euros. And this includes a kilogram of tomatoes and cucumbers, some, some chicken, some pork, and a bottle of vodka. Because obviously the most purchased things go into this average, average basket. A dinner in a restaurant is 3 to 5 euros. A 20 minute ride in a cab is 1 euro. And the average price of an apartment, if you would like to buy one in this area, is about 25,000 to 30,000 euros. But, again, these are just numbers. Life is much more complicated than numbers. The journalist who visited Donetsk, Mikhail Skorik, quotes a local hairdresser that has been living there already before the war. <clears throat> Quote, I make quite a nice living. Old clients don't forget me. There is work every day. I counted my living expenses together. It amounts to 15,000 Russian rubles. That's 240 euros. I pay 5,000 for my rent. The rest goes to food. This year I even went on a vacation. An old client of mine invited me to enjoy the beach in Odessa. Her apartment was empty for six days. So, I took my rest from the war and went there for a bit. Skorik reports that he had visited Tatiana, this hairdress, before in 2014. Apparently, a lot had changed since then. The story of this hairdresser is the essence of life in Donetsk. It's focused in this monologue. Tatiana went to Odessa with some cash that she had saved up. She had saved 2,000 grivna, which is Ukrainian money, about 70 euros, and 100 American dollars. She then spent grivnas for the road and for various war-related expenses, mostly bribes. See, driving through the block posts to Krasnoarmiska costs 250 grivnas, which is 10 euros. After that, taking a bus to Konstantinovka is 50 grivnas. Uh, that's 2 euros. From there, with a train to the sea, another 200 grivnas. 7 euros. In Odessa, she spent money only on food, exchanging her cherished 100 dollars. This was her first week of vacation during this war that has lasted for two and a half years already. Tanya is annoyed when remembering her expenses before the war. She says, We spent 10,000 dollars to renovate our house. I'd live without any worries for that money right now, for years. You see, in August 2014, a shell hit her house. Tatiana continues, We were sitting in our basement when this happened. I ran up with my man, but in the kitchen our two dogs and two cats were shivering in the corner, and everything was a huge mess. I was wondering how both the blast and my animals had wrecked my kitchen th so thoroughly, and thought to myself, well... How am I supposed to clean that now? 
<laughs> but my Volodya, he's standing behind me and he just asks, Got vodka? So, you know, we drank a granyonka each, that, that's 200 grams, and went outside to dig. His car was buried in dirt and wreckage. All the windows in the building were destroyed. During these years, I've replaced two of them. The rest, until it gets better, I just board it up. You could live there. My friends from Astona drive to me and stay there when another firefight is expected. It's just that I myself just can't live there. I rent an apartment. Then Tanya catches on and starts talking about what she hates the most, the local tax policy. The whole administrative system in Donetsk People's Republic, DPR for shortness, I'm gonna call them DPR from now on, well, the whole tax and administration system there is, um, well, Mr. Skorek politely puts it this way. He says, quote, let's just say uh, varied. But, as this is not mainstream media here, and I speak fluent Soviet, I can just tell you what he means. Mostly fucked up. Basically, because the taxes and how they're collected change constantly, and because the administration is corrupt utterly. The local self-appointed minister of finances, yeah, he's self-appointed too, because, hey, what elections? Alexander Timofeyev, whom, uh, by the way, everyone knows by his nickname Tashkent, which is, uh, by the way, uh, a city in Armenia. It, It might be their capital, but I might be wrong here. Basically, this Tashkent is a very unpopular person. Currently, at the time of this recording, and this is 8th of February, uh, currently, there's a light period there, so-called light period, because after numerous protests of small business owners, they have settled for a tax policy analog to the one used in Ukraine, for now. For now. But nobody knows how long this will last. So Tanya goes on about this. She says, I have no documentation whatsoever currently. I pay 500 rubles, which is 8 euros, per month for a patent per one person and 600 rubles, which is 9.5 euros, in the pension fund. Together, it's one hand, it is, it is 1100 rubles, 17.5 euros, for each worker in the company, if you employ less than 10 people. Oh yeah, and if you haven't caught on yet to this uh, story, our Tatiana is quite a well-off person in the area, being able to make her 200, uh, 240 euros per month, by the way. Because she, calcula- she calculated her living expenses. But that's about her total salary. She can save up some 10 euros per month, maybe. Okay? And this patent that she's speaking of, it, it's not the patent in the sense that you would understand it, it's just that I really couldn't get it, because Russian Google won't help me, and I don't speak Ukrainian even with all of my knowledge. So apparently that's a form of tax here. I don't know, she hasn't invented anything, and she isn't buying anyone's purchases. Uh, It might be just a sloppy English translation, uh, because... It was translated from it was translated in Latvian from Russian as patents, and in Russian it was also patient, which is the same thing. It means patent, but there must be some sort of mistake. Maybe I don't know. Uh, the, the general thing is that she must pay eleven hundred rubles for each worker in in the company in, in taxes, and and that's that's what I know from here. I just want to clear this up a bit because. I am not sure if the word patent in this case means the very same thing it means everywhere else, as we'll find out later on. Now, previously such small companies, which employ 10 people or less, had to pay a fixed rate of 2.5% of their revenue in taxes. 
Accordingly, all the revenue had to be strictly accounted for because the control in the DPR is very strict. The local tax agency, police and other institutions had been formed to the levels of pre-war district, thinking that all of Donetsk's region shall be um, so-called liberated. Well, they continue talking about this so-called liberation even to this day, but the, all the state controllers and policemen and bureaucrats are multiple times too much than would be necessary for such a territory with barely existing business life. There are people who catch other people for giving bribes, basically, and there's a quite a lot of people actually giving bribes whom to catch. But this lower and middle bureaucracy it's under, is under constant scrutiny. Like, and I have heard all sorts of tales about this scrutiny and this corruption there. Uh, for example, I have, I have heard of a doctor you know, who used to be a face and jaw surgeon who apparently had asked his patients to buy some materials, materials for stitches, basically, and some lacking meds for the operation uh, because he didn't have the materials to perform the operation. And he said, well, you guys, I want to do this surgery for you. Could you please buy these materials? Which makes sense if you live in a war-torn country and, you know, probably this person whom he wanted to operate was who had suffered in this war, but apparently his relatives called the state safety ministry. Mm, yeah, state safety ministry is a very nice uh, way how to put their local an- analog of KGB, except it's not a bureau this time; it's a ministry. So that that's that's cool. Okay. <laughs> anyway, this this not quite real republic, and it's not quite real courts. Uh, just made their decision, and this doctor, who asked for these supplies which he was genuinely lacking, and couldn't afford himself, and again, we'll come to this later, uh, this doctor was put into a prison colony for two years. <laughs> they they don't, as you might have guessed, they don't treat people very nicely there, but they do have to do a lot of work. And they're underfed. So it's like, it's basically, um you know, put them in a forced labor camp, for a while, then they'll calm down. Obviously, this uh, self-reporting is very strong there, and it's going on, because if you have an overblown administration with massive police state functions who uh, actively encourages people to spy on each other, and uh, a lot of the actual people with power and guns there are essentially mercenaries, so-called Russian voluntary people from uh, from a neighboring high-power state, you know, Things go as as they often do, and our our, our journalist Scottic reports that during the last few months, two of the aides of the Donetsk administrator Igor Martinov, they had been arrested too. Oh, and of course, all such administrators, especially mayors, are directly appointed by the leader of DPR, Alexander Zakhar Zakharchenko. So one of these aides, by the way, was arrested for running a racketeering ring. And the other one, for selling meds sent as humanitarian aid from Russia, in his own private pharmacies for profit. He had managed to write them down for some hospitals apparently previously, but then he just took them away and started selling them in his own pharmacies to make money. These guys were arrested. Uh, I'm sorry for all this data and everything, but I have to work with what I have here, and I try to explain it in the most coherent, responsible way. But it all makes sense. So so follow me through here, because these small businesses, they're very actually important. So, the local businesses are separated in two groups, as you might have guessed from the previous statement. And the first group is like Tatiana, those who employ under 10 people. The second one is basically everyone else. 
The first group, as mentioned before, had to pay these 2.5% of their revenue, now they pay 1100 rubles. The second group, those who employ over 10 people, pay a tax rate of 6% from the revenue. And uh, apparently, the lengths to which the business owners go to get in the first category and to be able to declare the revenue as low as possible and to officially hire as few people as possible, uh, yeah, this reaches ridiculous levels. Oh, and uh, this tax is in addition to every other tax that had been in place previously in Ukraine including such glorious taxes as the mm, hop-growing and wine-yard tax for all the cafes and restaurants. Especially since the DPR is so busy during this war and their massive economical problems subsidizing local breweries and vineyards. Excellent. In even more addition to this, according to a recent decree by the DPR leader Zakharchenko, Oh, and we'll mention Zakharchenko later again. The business owners are forced to pay taxes for their employees as if they would be paying 8,000 rubles, that is 130 euro, per month to their workers and salaries. You see, I, I might take some time off here, but uh, the idea is like this. This is how it works through most of Europe. You get your salary, then your company automatically deducts some some part of that salary and pays taxes for it instantly, but then the company also has to pay some amount for you in taxes. Essentially, parts of your taxes are paid from your salary and parts of your taxes are paid by your company for whom you work in. It's complicated and I can't explain all the details with it, but that's how, that, that's how it works here. So we don't have this one month, one point per year when you, when you pay all the taxes or anything. Anyway, uh, the business owners are forced to take, pay taxes for their employees as if they would be paying them 8,000 rubles per month. At the same time, the state unemployment agency is full with vacancies with a salary of 2,000 to 3,000 rubles per month, which is 32 to 46 euros. In the nearby Luhansk People's Republic, there recently, and again this is early February when I'm recording this, there was a massive scandal, uh, it was in January, where a vacancy for a teacher for an elementary school was posted. And the salary there was stated to be 1,200 rubles per month. That's 20 euros. Per month. <laughs> Talk about human tragedy. You might raise an eyebrow now. But wait, in the beginning you stated the average salary was 150 to 200 euro per month. What's going on here? And yes, it is. Yes, it is. The average salary is 150 to 200 euros per month. But it's not the median salary. Now... Here we go from this, and uh, I'm not going to explain the difference between average and median salary here in this podcast, but you should Google this. But in general, we'll get to explaining this whole weirdness with the average date and the real-life date. Now, do you remember that overbloated bureaucracy? Oh, and that there's a Russian-funded war fought there, with a ton of Russian so-called voluntaries there, which are parts of Russian military and mercenaries, but... You know, that's totally not official until they completely win, just like in the case of Crimea. Yeah, that will also play a part. But hold on, hold on, hold on. We haven't touched the big business yet. And this, you might find it weird, but this is important because this directly affects the lives of so many people that live in this district. Officially, the big business doesn't pay anything, anything at all to DPR in taxes. And it's hard to force them to do so. You see, the big businesses, like the metallurgy factory of Yenkayive, work for export. 
and the only profitable export can be to European Union, and thus it has to be legal. And the only way for it to be legal is to be conducted through Europe. If you close the factory down, the whole city built around this factory will be destroyed. The people will rebel and there will be tons and tons of issues. Remember that there are 3 million people living in this area. A total control with the limited pro-Kremlin rebel forces with all their mercs and all their volunteers, everything, it's utterly impossible. And they're stretched very, very, very thin and the local populace is not enthusiastic. I might say they're kind of meh, indifferent, because what has been often depicted as a massive civil war is actually just a bands of ruffians doing things and, and military from the other side, but the common people are just trying to live their lives. So, okay. You might ask, how about taking the factory from its lawful owner? Yeah, and how about with all the administration there? See, that would destroy all the income, because there will be no exports. Uh, because all the deals and everything uh, that the owner has made, and now, you know, if you take the factory away from him, you don't get the deals back. And all the owner's money is in foreign banks anyway. And, and the owner has moved to Ukraine. Oh, and the owner's ad administrators are smart too. The raw materials needed for production are stockpiled outside the border in Ukraine and brought in in small quantities, never keeping more than what's needed for the week's work in place. And neither DPR nor LPR can really import any raw materials. Now, this is a major problem for many a Russian political technician. They have reached some, albeit limited, success in this area. For one, two of the massive confectionery factories are technically, purely in paper, rented to DPR, and thus are providing some income. Now, and, and some of the middle-level factories have been nationalized, and there had been this massive nationalizing program going on, but they just can't touch the big businesses who are the massive taxpayers there, because they will lose so much of income, which is often paid through bribes and things, but the, really, the big guys just don't care, because they are essentially too big to fail, and the people in the administration of DPR and LPR are just finding out that, hey, well, you can close this factory down, but if you take it away from their legal owners, no one will buy your stuff. And you don't know how to produce that stuff. And nobody likes you here. So that's an issue. Now, a lot of medium, medium businesses have been taken over, though, because, uh, for example... They essentially stole a privately owned mobile network and, and turned it into their own state-owned Phoenix mobile network over there, which is uh, one of the three mobile networks actually servicing this area. So it's not like the government hasn't tried to take the money away. It just it's just that all this Eastern European all this Eastern Ukrainian region is full with huge factories and huge technical areas, metallurgy companies and everything. And it's just literally too big and they can't, can't do this. So, this is a bit crazy because they don't have any money from the companies in their territory and if they kind of screw this over and close them down, then people will start rebelling. And that is terrible because then they'll lose all control over this. You know, reminding you that these are essentially squads of, squads of rebels, of, of of paid collaborationist locals together with Russian mercenaries and Russian vo so-called volunteers sent in here, okay? And, and and this goes even further. All this while, the electricity to the whole region is provided from Ukraine by a DTEK concern. It's called DTEK. 
It's located in Ukraine, obviously. For about a year there, nobody paid for any electricity in the region while the rebel government searched for a solution. And they have one. Sorta. Now, they have a Fox independent limited liability firm working apparently in the interests of DPR. And the DPR government pays in Russian rubles to that company, which then transfers them to this electrical concern. And all this mess is necessary, because in Ukraine, if you're a business and take Russian rubles from DPR, you can get sued for supporting terrorism. And they'd be right to do so, because they are on the economical blockade of this zone, because they don't want people supporting this uh, basically Russian-backed, weird, separatist, mercenary... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Fans or whatever. Oh, and uh, by the way, uh, DPR can't just not pay this concern, as this electronical concern is the only major electricity provider in the area. So, essentially, if they pay directly to this electrical concern, the electrical concern does not want the money because then they'll get sued by Ukrainians. But but they can't just turn off the... But, but basically, they need the money because they have all this leverage over the DPR, this People's Republic of Donetsk. So, now we have a weird situation where there's an independent company whose only business is take the money for, for electricity from this DPR government and hand it over to the electrical, electrical concern. And they, they have been, like, trying to find other solutions like this for a while now. Now, at the same time, every other large company in the area, their owners being abroad anyways, have declared themselves jurisdictionally to be in Ukraine, and they pay taxes there. And this has caused some very weird things to happen, such as small villages on the Ukrainian border now have a lot more money in their budgets than before. Because in Ukraine, the taxes are distributed locally. So, you know, technically they receive taxes paid by the large factory that's actually located in DPR. It's like this. Essentially, if your, if your city or town or village has a huge factory, then all the taxes paid by that factory go back to your local municipality's budget. Well, not all of them, but, you know, most of them get redirected. So now, small villages who had never had big budgets, suddenly they're accounted for as if having these huge factories. So, with all these money-saving scheme, money schemes going on around the place, yeah, these villages get very, very lucky. Now, because of all, this, all these shenanigans, European experts conclude that about 82% of the budget for these so-called republics come from Russia. But, actually, due to sanctions, this amount has decreased, really. 
uh, with more and more increasing demands from Kremlin that these republics find their own funding. <laughs> now, again, I have to remind you that a lot of these medium-sized businesses have been nationalized, and some have been demolished, but then, <laughs> what a surprise, they found out that it wasn't the most profitable thing to do. And now, the really, really crazy part begins why all this business talk was so important. You see, every last one of the workers who work in these major companies, who pay their money to Ukraine, they get their salaries in Ukrainian grivnas on their Ukrainian bank card. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people here. And also to this, you can add about a million people, that's in total more than one-third of the population, a million plus those, like, four, four, five hundred thousand people, who get their retire, who get their money in their Ukrainian bank accounts. A million retired people getting their pensions there, and plus all these workers. And now, they're all living in this DPR, slash LPR, controlled territories. And here's the kicker. There are no working commercial banks in these territories. Nor are there any ATMs. Not one. Oh, and Ukrainian cards are also not accepted in the stores. This is obviously a huge problem. Now, those who can drive to Ukrainian government-controlled territory to withdraw and exchange their money. Some also travel to make their purchases with their cards in Russian Federation's Rostov district, which is very nearby, and they do take bank cards at stores there. The rest, and those would be most of these affected people, they use the new and thriving business service found only in DPR and LPR, money withdrawal companies. Here, people can transfer and withdraw any amount of cash from any Ukrainian or Russian debit or credit card. Prices vary. In the very beginning, people were charged 25% of the amount withdrawn. Now, due to competition, all services are charged 5% from their monetary value. So how do the people, the common people living there, view modern Donetsk after all of this? Well, it's a controversial view. The optimists claim that the city is alive, the stores are full with Russian and Belarusian produce, and sometimes you can even see traffic jams in the streets. Now, it is kind of weird that that's a direct quote, both from the article and from sources, just that there are some people who view traffic jams as a sign of progress and as something good. Well, that's a thing to think about a bit. But the pessimists, on the other hand, they view that the city center is empty, that there are no clients for any of these businesses still remaining there, that there is no train or airplane traffic, and that every ad, printed or otherwise, is just political agitation by the rebel government, as there are almost no commercial advertising. This almost is important, though. Apparently, there are a lot of cheaply and amateurishly made ads printed on home computers for such magnificent services as delivery of any product, substance, or person to any place in Russia, Ukraine, or Crimea, or for solutions of various local issues like getting Ukrainian pension in cash, because your card doesn't work, getting passports, getting electronic passes to the conflict zone, registration of businesses in the nearby Russian Rostov, where things are in order. Huh. But yeah, as always, it's a complex issue as there are various comparison points, like... Pessimists compare it with the peaceful 2013 before the war. 
optimists for the August of 2014, when was, was the peak of refugees from Donetsk who were escaping that place. It was the peak of looting and marauderism by the so-called militias. Some also compare it with the January of 2015, when the stuff from the stores also started to disappear the same way the people before. Ukraine started the economic blockade of DPR and LPR at this point, and only started to allow border crossings in the control points. But now, at this point, when the people don't have that much money, there is some business going around after all. And again, there's a point of comparison for you. Our previously mentioned Tatiana is renting an apartment, and is afraid that the rental will increase. But in 2014, all of the city was empty, and the escaped landlords, who have now moved to Ukraine and other countries, basically gave away their apartments for a while. You know, just look over them. And then there was another phase of, basically, you just pay the bills, please. But now... Now it's more complicated than that. Now there is a period when 5,000 rubles is considered to be a cheap rent. But those landlords who have escaped to Ukraine... These people rent their apartments only for grivna, and ask up to 2,500 grivna, which is 90 euros, without the bills. And these 90 euros is a huge amount in the DPR. Now, you might have noticed the tendency here, because this, and why am I not speaking about this too much, because this is not really a civil war. Because the people are mundane people, caring for their mundane needs, and it's actually way more common to worry about, you know, your salary than what's going on in the front lines where people are fighting wars. They care for their lives and not for some abstract concept of fanatical devotion to these so-called republics. Because then, because, frankly, there's only so much loyalty you can have for a foreign-funded mercenary and collaborationist army, really. <laughs> not that there aren't these collaborationists or locals fighting there. <laughs> because the army, the army is where that average salary number comes from that I mentioned in the beginning. You see, the average infantryman receives 15,000 rubles per month. That's the 250 euro, that's the average salary. That makes him better paid than the small business owner Tatiana, or approximately the same. But if you think that that's all his life expenses, then he's actually a bit higher up in the social ranks. And the business owner, Tatiana, this small hairdress saloon owner, she's very well off. Also, about the same salary is paid to the leading specialists in various ministries and administrative apparatus. Which, let me remind you, is extremely overbloated. Uh, think of the implications for the economy and where the money is coming from yourselves, you see. I'll just carry on here. Commanders of battalions, ministry officials, and the parliament deputies of DPR, and parliament deputies are their sort of MPs, and they represent the parliament and the legislative power. Yeah, very lots and efficient work done by those here. Anyway, these people receive about 30,000 rubles per month, which is about 500 euros. Very high ministry officials and rebel commanders, the local generals of sorts, they receive about 50,000 rubles, which is 800 euros per month. Now, the highest paid of all are the ministers and the leaders of all the thing. They get 60,000 rubles per month, or 950 euros. Now, in contrast, a doctor makes about 5,500 5, rubles, which is 90 euros per month. A school teacher gets around 4,000 to 4,000 4, 
to 4,500 rubles, which is 60 to 70 euros. Mostly, the available job vacancies are just contact jobs renovating various apartments and destroyed buildings. To do this, the local employment agency gathers people and pays them for these works, often with huge delays, and they pay them 2,500 rubles, that's 40 euros. On average, a salary of 5,000 rubles, which is 80 euros, per month is considered adequate in Donetsk. In the smaller regional towns, half of that is okay too. The discrepancy of wealth, the income inequality is just terrible, but the people kind of make it through. How I view it personally is that it's a search of normalcy in a crazy era. And this will show up later as well, but seriously, I don't see these people as massive rebels against Ukraine or freedom fighters. They just look like common people who are at least pretending or trying as best as they can. That they live in a normal country with with normal everything. Really. Now, the fact that these people lack currency because 90 euros for a doctor versus 250 for an average infantryman that just called in there to fight Ukraine. Now, that's great, but the fact that the average people lack currency that can be most seen in the service industry. Mr. Skorek writes that he's worked on this material while eating in a somewhat nice-looking restaurant near the center of Donetsk, as he reports. Everything is tasty and made with great care. The menu includes home noodles for 50 rubles, or 0.8 euros, borscht for 80 rubles, which is 1.3 euros, harcho for 90 rubles, or 1.4 euros, and six other first courses for about the same prices. Pork or beef steak costs 2.7 and 3 euros accordingly. 1 euro is exchanged for, tixi- for 67 rubles in the exchange. At the same time, the streets are clean and it's relatively safe to be outside. Safety is enforced by the permanent curfew from 11 pm to 5 am and harsh measures taken against any and all gangs and anyone who might rebel against the government. So, armed people who aren't performing their duties don't show up on the streets. The streets themselves tend to be empty already after 7pm. All the restaurants are closed at 9pm. And a lot of these pre-war cafes and restaurants work barely breaking even. And even that, so that the new government wouldn't confiscate the property or that the store wouldn't get robbed by the militias. The rent for such places is basically symbolic. Many privately based small services have opened now like hair saloons where any and all services are like one euro each, and a lot of home-based food stores, previously pressed out from the center by the high rent costs in supermarkets, yeah, they're back. Essentially, you grow something in your back garden, you sell it there. Taxi services, where the driver will take you anywhere for the same one euro, are still there. So the small business is the way of people getting their prosperity back, and a way for the local DPR to get their local taxes. Now, let me remind you that the self-declared DPR and LPR territories, they are about one-third of their respective districts. But the local food factories and brands located there produce their stuff for the whole Ukrainian market. And that is closed now. (laughs) Now, the Olymp and Lunanova liquor factories, Dobrynya, Marichka and Milkov Luhanska dairy product factories and the numerous meat and sausage producing factories Yeah, they work for a very narrow market. 
and they can't export to Russia either, as they don't have any quality certifications anymore. Therefore, all the local produce is very, very cheap. One other thing that is also very cheap is cigarettes. According to this article, previously it was impolite in Donetsk to talk about in detail about the Hamadei factory, as they made ripoffs of American cigarette brands there during their work during their after work hours. Now they also don't like to speak a lot about it, but the cigarettes are produced in large quantities, except now they stay here instead of going to Ukraine. This is evidenced by the large amounts of United States cigarettes, Parliament, Marlboro, Lucky Strike, and so on. And on those packages, all the text and warnings and pictures and everything are in Russian. And they cost 3 euros per block, that's 10 packs. Amazing. Now, weird situation is in the real estate market. Prices have extremely fallen since before the war. And a lot of the local people sell their apartments for these very small prices to get out of the region. And those are bought up by... Russian volunteers who want to stay here, hoping that the situation will improve. A report comes from a doctor, Natalia, who now works in a testing laboratory in the Ukrainian side. She says, I sold my three-room apartment for $26,000, and I don't want to return there anymore. Elderly people arrived. They had a daughter. The daughter, in her mid-twenties, instantly went and hugged my ex-neighbor from the second floor. Her husband's from the safe safety from the state safety ministry, and I could understand where did my buyers get their money. They didn't show me the husband of their daughter either. We made a deal in Kramatorsk together with a notary, notary, in the bank. I transferred the money to my account, but the separatists went back to my ex-home city. I wouldn't return there even if Ukraine comes back there. Before the war, my apartment cost about one hundred thousand dollars. Recently, DPR government had declared that all the deals have to be made inside DPR, and those deals made in the rest of Ukraine are non-binding legally. This apparently worried the local buyers of these apartments. Turns out that the scales can now be turns out that the sales can be now disputed in court. For now, they just pay the relevant taxes for these deals to two governments, hoping for the best, and that those deals actually so that these court cases actually never come back. More weirdness is experienced by those who have taken pre- mortgages pre-war. Or I hope they're mortgages. Uh, those long-term loans that you take to buy a house. Or an apartment. Um, yeah, over here we have this hypothecarized credits and mortgages just show up when, uh, showed up when I googled this. Oh well, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I hope you understand what I'm talking about here. Anyway, the DPR, there's no commercial banks. So any new mortgages are impossible, I'll just call them that way. But at the least, the old loans, by the way, are just somewhere in the limbo. Even though banks with Western capital managed to cleanse their portfolios here as much as they could. Kirill, who lives in Donetsk and had taken a mortgage before the war for 14% per year on 30 years to buy an apartment in a 9-story blockhouse. Yeah, Kirill tells the following. In the summer of 2015, I got a call from Ukursib Bank. My apartment at that moment ran for about $90,000 in the market, and the remainder of the loan was 65000 In the beginning, they threatened me. I offered them to open an office in Donetsk so that I could make payments there. 
Then they offered for then they offered that I pay off them twenty percent of this total amount, and then they will leave me alone. They'll be done with it. I said only fifteen percent. They sent me to hell, but called again after a month and agreed. Then I said ten percent, and we yelled at each other again. Finally, in February 2016, I got a call again, and they said that the owners of the bank have agreed to any deal to cleanse their credit portfolio. So we quickly made a deal. I paid $6,500, and we went separate ways. The remainder of the debt, together with all the fees and interest, I was legally gifted. That's my main problem now. In Ukraine, gift deals are taxed by 70% of their value. I have to pay this tax. Uh, then again, it's stupid to think about this now. Well, maybe these papers will burn together with the tax papers before it ends. I don't know. For now, all they can do is make threatening calls now and then. So, all the banks are weird and everything is weird. But hey, at least the people are optimistic. Well, to a point. You see, Mikhail Skorik at the end of his article reports... A lot of the weird details from DPR are connected with the childlike disappointment. This has initiated a lot of events that, according to local ideologues, would make the world notice. So, what what kind of events are there? Well, at the beginning of the war, these major events were the demonstrative parades of the prisoners of war. Later, during the Holodomor memorial dates in Ukraine, they started making colorful farmer's markets in the Lenin Square. But in 2016... They opened a McDonald's in Donetsk. It was basically a governmental program. The preparations for all of the three restaurants were depicted in the media, and the first opening was streamed on the separatist YouTube account. Now, as of right now, the restaurants have changed their names to Don Mak. Picture of this will be on our website. When they changed the name, the separatist Donetsk Information Agency quoted the manager of restaurants, Nina Runich, who, with pride, stated that the taste of the food, just as the menu, has remained the same. People will still be able to eat their favorite meals when they'll come to us. There are three Donmak restaurants in Donetsk, and really, they have restored almost all of the menu. The Minister of Production and Commerce, in his Facebook page, right next to the repairs of an electrical locomotive in Yuzovsk Electrometallurgical Factory, can now also post about new cheese roll introduced in glorious Donmak. Yay. You see, DPR is completely free from any licensing or copyright laws. You can feel it everywhere, and the locals are proud about that, stating that they, truly, are completely free. In these Donmak restaurants, the prices are apparently a bit higher than in McDonald's in the nearby Russian Rostov, but way lower than in Europe. Hamburger costs 55 rubles, cheeseburger 75, but a chicken roll is 140. Here, like everywhere else in the safe proclaimed separatist republics, inflation is only stopped by the main deficit that these people have, which would be a lack of money, really. Now, after all of this, we have learned that these people were really, they are, these people are really normal folks who just try to live their own lives, and then you have to think about all this fanaticism and all this civil war going on here. And to respond to this question, maybe, and to end this special episode, I'd like to quote a video that we received here in Latvia from the Ukrainian separatist leader Zakharchenko, the guy who is the head person of everything in DPR, in the People's Republic of Donetsk. 
and he was talking about his political views there. This one was um, another gem from that information agency's glorious agenda. <clears throat> and I quote Zakharchenko now. Russia will only prosper when we'll conquer Great Britain. I'm not talking about Kiev here. We should grab Berlin and go even further. Anglo-Saxons are our national enemies. All of our problems come from them. Only if, we, only if we'll conquer them, then we'll be happy. So yeah. Make your own conclusions about DPR and their generals and the people living there. See you next time. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.